Hey, Chloe. Hey, Ralph. How are you going? Yeah, I'm awesome. Better than you, I hear. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I was just having a little groove along to our intro and kind of like, cool, that's got me in the mood. Mm, how's your dorsal fin? <laughs> a bit floppy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> For context, guys, context, guys, not <laughs> just a bit, a bit of a grumbly week, you know. <laughs> I likened it to my dorsal fin being a little bit lacklustre, mm. just did, so it doesn't sound too weird to everyone you, out there. <laughs> you, did, you did something to an intercostal, didn't you? <laughs> well, look, we think I could be an intercostal. Who knows? Bit of, bit of musculoskeletal ouch. It hurts when you breathe. Hurts when I breathe. Mm. But, um, that sucks. Um, yeah, but you know, it's coming good. Mm. Coming good. It will be short-lived and I will sure. stay positive. Time, time, sleep and movement will help it. Hold on. Turns out that's what the guidelines say, Ralph. Yeah. And try not to worry. And try not to worry. All exactly. Right. And um, swearing <laughs> helps too, apparently. Apparently things <laughs> swearing. No, less when well, you swear. It does. So there's there's actual research yeah, about yeah. swearing and, and, its, and its effects on pain yeah. and I have definitely when I've had to have painful things done before I've definitely sworn through them and it really helps yeah. and also have you seen the studies that people that swear tend to be um, more genuine huh. or no, more I honest seen those, no. yeah so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's right. let's, let's, <laughs> let's let's leave that and move on I know I was, um, like, I was like do I swear here what do I do <laughs> So, so what, what do you want to talk about today? Um, okay, today I want to talk about something that comes up ad nauseum um, in, in the Pilates industry and I've also had um, a decent amount of direct messages uh, sent to me this week. Um, you know, just, just – and it's great and I'm so, so stoked that, you know, those that are listening to these podcasts are, are getting curious and it's making you think and you're asking questions. And the big one that keeps coming up is is these, I'm going to say Pilates alignment protocols, but I think we can kind of, you know, spread that out to the, the broader movement industry that, that somehow if we don't have someone in some sort of perceived perfect alignment, and we'll go into, you know, that it, what that might mean in different parts of the body, um, <laughs> that they're going to get injured or they're more likely to be injured. So that's what I want to talk about. Okay. So, um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a foundational, uh, you know, idea in in throughout most of Pilates, and I think it's pretty foundational throughout fitness in general. I would mm, say. I agree. Um, that if you do the exercise in an, an exercise or a movement in uh, quote you know incorrect or poor form in quote. Uh, you uh, increase your risk of injury. So, for instance, if you're doing a side bend and your neck's a bit floppy, you know, or if you run and your foot's pronated, or if you uh, lift something and you're bent in your back while you do it, or if you're doing something with your arms and your shoulder hikes up, you know, those types of things mm. increase the chance of injury. Well, that's that's the that's the belief, isn't it? That's the kind of the, mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. If you're doing a lunge and your knees go over your toes or go out to the side, or, or if go, you're or doing footwork inwards, and yeah. go inwards, or if you're doing footwork and you're not in a neutral line pelvis, or yeah. you're like. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I find it really hard to to not, uh, put, an ed, not put a tone on. Yeah, to I not put hear. a tone on that, yeah. and I can feel that I, I'm putting an exhausted 
tone on it because seriously, I'm exhausted by this. It's so antiquated. So it's like, what do we need to do like to talk through it and also to get people understanding that it's just not a thing yeah, that we well, need to worry about in well, Pilates. Did you know that and, um, the term ad nauseum comes from mm-hmm. Latin, uh, which ad nauseum is nausea, right? So ad nauseum is when an argument or other discussion, it's continued to the point of nausea, you know? Right. Um, so this is literally making yeah, me sick. Yeah. This discussion is making me sick. Mm. Oh, there um, you go. So interesting turn of phrase. So, all right. Mm. So wow. where, where shall we start in this one? <sighs> so, you know? okay. I, I think that for, from what I'm – from what I'm getting from a, a lot of direct messages is that, you know, this this notion that uh, I, I'm assuming some of it's coming down. This is an assumption I'm making. They're potentially referring to sheer forces through the spine, perhaps, mm. if we're talking about you know what? position. And, and I don't know anything. I haven't read those messages. I don't know who sent them. I don't know, you know, I know nothing about, I'm just making, totally making assumptions. So I could be off track, but... My um, my 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 assumption based on many previous conversations that I've had with people, and also how I used to think, you know, because mm. I I didn't always know everything about everything, you know, I I still don't know everything about everything, but oh, you know. no, someone referred no Georgiana referred to you as the human human equivalent of SciHub the other day, which I thought was like so perfect, um, you know, but I I I I was very profoundly ignorant about. Uh, the nature of pain, biomechanics, physiology, you know, for the majority of my life. And the, the cool thing was when I was profoundly ignorant is most of that time I didn't think I was ignorant. I thought I really knew my shit. Mm. Um, and so I can't remember who said it, but someone said, like, it's not what you don't know that's dangerous. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. You know, and mm. I think that's maybe it was Mark Twain or someone who said it, but mm. um, I think it's quite profound. It's because, like, when you're when you know when when I didn't know about this stuff, I I didn't know that I didn't know about it, and so I think many people mm. are probably in that boat as well. And mm. um, I, you know, I want to extend the hand of friendship to those people because absolutely because uh, I was one of them. Oh, totally. And I think there's that always, you know, and this is what I hear, and I hear it from our students too, particularly earlier on in the course. They're scared of either hurting themselves or, worst, hurting a client. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So so if you don't understand that these things aren't a thing or these things potentially aren't a thing you need to worry about, yeah. then if you're concerned that you're going to hurt someone from not following a certain alignment protocol, I can see why there's fear and concern in that. Yeah. And so I guess based on, you know, if, if I project the way I used to see the world, you know, and, and think, okay, well, that's, that's how, you know, maybe people who have this concern are seeing the world, you know, the view that uh, if you bend your back when you lift it, it's dangerous, or if your knees go forward of your toes when you lunge, it's dangerous or, or whatever, mm-hmm. um, is that, you know, what I used to think was like, I, I didn't really have a clear picture of why it was dangerous. You know, I just mm. I just knew that there was something inside your back that would not be in the right place if you bent over or something. And and I, I really, you know, if you if you'd asked me, you know, eight or ten years ago, like, well, specifically, what would happen in your back that would be different? Mm. I'd be like uh, the disc, 
And you, mm. yeah, but if you said like, yeah, but specifically what? <laughs> Mm. I would have said the same thing. I would have said the same thing. Like it was potentially dangerous for your discs. I yeah. don't kind of understand yeah. why, but, you know, we're not going to do it because I don't want to hurt you or myself. Right. And the same in the knee, you know, it's like, okay, why is it, why is it, why is it dangerous to take your knees over your toes? Like what specifically? And, you know, I, my, my guess would be most people who believe that that is dangerous wouldn't be able to specifically say oh well uh, when mm. you flex your knees you know beyond 90 degrees you significantly increase uh, loading on the posterior cruciate ligament you know and that you know the posterior cruciate ligament can handle 2000 newtons of force and uh you know i don't think people would <laughs> have no. thought it no, no, to no, that no. Level of, <laughs> no. of detail i certainly did it yeah. i just thought that that's you know, if I'm teaching someone to lunge, I need to keep their, you know, I remember I used to say knee in line with the second toe and then not going over, like not yeah. going further than the toe. So oh, now yeah. what I know about joints and joint health, I'm like, hell yeah, let's Just work that. Move, yeah. <laughs> let's work that joint through full range because I want to yeah. get you, you know, healthy oxygenated joints. Yeah. Um so, mm. so you know, shall we look? Shall we look at one of those? Shall we look at? We could look at the, the yeah, knees, or the, we could look at the spine. The first one I'd like to look at, Raf, because this is the one I hear most common, and I, what I think people, and this is going out, pushing out to the broader movement community, and I see this time and time again in Facebook threads, in Instagram threads, is is people's concern with any sort of load on the spine that's not in a perceived neutral. So I'd love to talk about, you know, um, what happens in regards to um, the distribution of, of load um, in regards to the structures of the back, whether we're lifting something in a more of a perceived neutral or whether we're lifting something in more of a flex spine. Can we look into that? All right. Well, I mean, you know, you know, I love to talk about this, but um, because we've talked about it a lot, but... And uh, I love it. <laughs> hi, Vay, this is like a... You know, I mean, how many hours have we got? Um, I know, I know. But I think if we could, I know, I know. But for me, this was really fascinating. Like like before, if you loop back to what you were saying, you know, when when I was more naive and someone would ask me why, you know, and I'd just be like, mm, something in the mark, discs. When I learnt more about the distribution of, of force on the different, you know, musculoskeletal parts of the, of the back, I kind of went, oh, I get it and I get why. That's not dangerous. Yeah. All right. So, all right. So let's think about, let's think about the back and, you know, loading up your back and bending or, or slash should you be in neutral spine. Um, and so, you know, how do you load your back? Well, you could load your back doing something like the hundreds or the roll up. You could load your back doing a squash or, a, you know, lifting something up off the floor. Um, you know, there are many ways you could, you could load, load your back. Um, most of the research has been done on in this area on lifting, um, mm -hmm. and the reason for that is because that's where uh, that's that's what people do in the workplace more. You know, people don't tend to do the hundreds or the roll up in their workplace very much as much as they tend to like lift lift boxes and things. Um, and so, you know, if you're the if you're the the Ford, you know, motor plant in Detroit or whatever. And you've got a hundred thousand workers on your production line, and you know, twelve percent of them are off due to low back pain at any one time. Well, mm -hmm. that's you know, that's a pretty significant issue, and there's there's you can see why there's a major amount of research has gone into trying to figure out like what's the best way of lifting or 
you know, whatever, so that we can, uh, you know, preserve people's uh, basically their capacity to be at work and productive rather mm. than, you know, at home lying in bed moaning. Um, yes. So, um, <laughs> makes so, sense. <laughs> so, in the literature, um, this is called uh, stoop or squat. Uh, and, and stoop just means when you bend over with your legs straight. So, you just kind of, you know, like just imagine you walk home. You, you walk into your lounge room after work one time and there's, you know, your kids' Legos all over the floor or something, you know, or there's a some, you know something on the floor very light that you want to pick up, mm -hmm. a pen or something like that. And, you know, when you bend over to pick it up, most people would sort of keep their legs pretty straight and just kind of bend at the waist uh, to pick it up. Um, so that's called a stoop lift in, in the scientific liter literature. And then there's a squat mm -hmm. lift, which is the other one they advocate, which is uh, basically where you let your heels lift up off the floor and you squat down. So you're kind of resting on the balls of your feet and you keep your back really mm -hmm. straight when you do that. So, um, and that's, you know, like if you look at the OHNS posters in your, you know, lunchroom at work, um, that's how they recommend that you lift, you know, bend your knees, not your back and all that kind of jazz. So that's a squat lift. Um, mm. And uh, so, you know, so there are like, there are kind of multiple lines of evidence on this. And so, you know, one is that we can do epidemiological studies. So we can sort of, you know, look at how people actually move um, and then see who gets a sore back and who doesn't. You know, like we can go to the Ford motor plant and like just look at how people lift and then come back a year later and see who got a sore back and who didn't. Um, and that's called an epidemiological study. Um, and then we can do biomechanical studies on living humans where we can, you know, put all kinds of, you know, uh, force plates and muscle, you know, activity detectors and X-ray and things on them and get them to lift stuff up. Um, and video them while they do it. And then we can kind of like, you know, use computers to measure all the forces and figure out, oh, how much force was on their, you know, L4, 5 joint or whatever. Mm. Um, and we can do that. Um, and then there are, we can do intervention studies. So we can say, okay, we, you know, we get a certain number of people and we, and we let's, you know, half of them just lift however they want. And then we give the other half, you know, special training on how to lift with a straight back. And then we come back a year later and see who got back pain and who didn't. Mm. Um, so yeah, so and and there there also um, um, there are a couple of other we, like they can do lab studies and stuff on like they pull spines out of cadavers and put them in machines and bend them and press them and see how much force they can take before they they snap. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so those are basically the four types of studies we can do epidemiological where we just kind of watch people. And, and see, mm -hmm. see what happens. Uh, we can do biomechanical studies where we measure the forces when people actually lift and bend or lift and don't bend. Um, then we can do intervention studies to see if we teach people to lift a certain way, does that change how much back pain they get um, over the next you know, period? Uh, and then finally, we can do lab studies where we basically pull spinal segments like a couple of vertebrae out of a pig's neck and stick it in a machine and bend it and compress it and see what happens to it. Um, and so uh, there's in the biomechanical literature, uh, it's and, and I think there are, you know, like I said, how many hours have we got? <laughs> but I, I'd like to I, I'd like to focus. You know, I guess I, I'm interested mostly in the biomechanical literature. I think the lab studies um, have, you know, interesting things to say, but the, I think they're less applicable to actually how mm. a human, you know, what I, happens in a life human. Um, although, you know, we could talk about lab studies and I've got some really interesting ones, but I think there's one I'm thinking of, uh, so basically, 
when we look at stoop versus squat lifting, again, stoop is just when you keep your legs straight and bend your back, and squat is when you keep your back straight and bend your legs. Um, if mm-hmm. we look at that, basically what they find is that the total force on the low back is essentially the same in both of those conditions. Which right, and now so people. both, so both of those things. So if we're visualizing what's going on here, both of those things like are, are keeping the load close to the body, aren't they? Well, here's the thing, because and and you know if you're listening to this for the first, you know and hearing that information for the first time, you're probably thinking, what the fuck, like. Yeah, I want to try and give people a bit of a, a visual picture. You know, like if we're using, say, a person in a box, yeah. what are we? What are we visualizing? Well, the thing is, like, you know, the forces on your low back uh, when you lift. Um, you know, they fundamentally there are two sets of forces on your low back, and one set of forces are the forces generated by your own muscles. So your low back muscles, you know, contract, and they create it. They generate a, a, a compressive force and a shear force on your on your low back, and mm-hmm. then. Uh, also, there's a force from the external load. So if you're picking up a box or a dumbbell or a baby or whatever, you know, there's a there's a force exerted by that load on your low back. And mm. and and so the forces exerted by your muscles on your low back are determined by well how heavy the load is, because if the load's heavier, then you contract your muscles more. Right. Uh, and secondly, also the 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 alignment of your low back. So if your low back is uh, more flexed, those uh, muscles tend to generate a uh, greater compressive, um, uh, sorry, greater shear force, you know, which is tends to like slide the vertebrae forward. Whereas uh, when you're vertical, you know, when you're in a more neutral spine, they tend to generate a greater compressive force. So they tend to kind of squish the vertebrae, you know, vertically down one upon the other. So, um, so, yeah, and it, like it's much easier to demonstrate that with a with a drawing. Um, mm-hmm. But basically, you know, the, I think the important takeaway um, is that as your muscles contract in your in your back, because as you lift something, you know, it's probably your back muscles that are doing that. Um, if you're flexed, they generate a slightly more shear force um, than if you're neutral. Whereas if you're neutral, they generate slightly more compressive force. And um, I'll link uh, in the show notes to, a, I think that I've got a made a video in the past um, explaining this. And in fact, I'm pretty sure I have, and I will link to that video. Yeah, there's a great one yeah. in the dip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's one thing. So so if you flex and load, you know, with the exact same amount of weight in your hand, et cetera, um, you will have more shear force if you're flexed and more compressive force if you're neutral. Um, and then, but then the second thing is um, that when you are flexed, so if you do a stoop lift, so imagine if you stand with your legs straight, imagine there's a, I don't know, let's call it a kettlebell, um, like a, you know, an eight kilo kettlebell, you know, mm. in, on the ground and you want to pick it up. Well, mm-hmm. if you stand with your uh, feet, uh, you know, together and you, your legs straight and you bend forward and you pick that kettlebell up. Well, actually, because of the, you know, where your body segments are, that kettlebell is going to be almost directly under your um, sort of L lumbar spine. Let's just say your lumbar mm-hmm. spine. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're, 
you know, your centre of mass has to be on your feet, mm, you know. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to, you know, sway your body forwards or back to the point mm. where basically that kettlebell is travelling up your leg. So it's going to be basic. Your shoulders are going to be in front of it. Um, mm. And you're going to be, you know, lifting it up in such a way that basically the horizontal distance between the kettlebell and your low back is very small, which mm-hmm. decreases what's called the moment arm or basically the leverage so that mm-hmm. you're going to get it's going to actually reduce the shear force. Whereas if you did a, uh, right. like a, a squat lift, what you do is uh, if you, you, know, you, you bring your feet apart and you scoot your bum backwards. So when you squat down, yeah. your knees don't go forwards, your bum goes backwards, mm-hmm. which increases the horizontal distance between your mm-hmm. low back and the weight. So even though your back is more neutral, there's a larger – moment arm you know a larger lever arm for that mm-hmm. same eight kilos and and the the way that lever arms work um is that the force increases with relative to the the the, the multiple of the distance right so it's the weight multiplied by how far away it is right so if it's twice as mm-hmm. far away it's twice as much load right mm-hmm. on your back uh-huh so, mm-hmm. so it, you know, even if it's only a difference of a few inches, it makes a very big difference to how much loads on your back. And so what we find mm-hmm. in the biomechanical literature is that basically those two things cancel each other out. So the increased shear force from the muscles when you're flexed is essentially cancelled out by the increased shear force from the load because your butt scooted back when you're neutral. So basically, it's 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 a wash, you know. And we find that the the actual total force on the low back is pretty much identical, regardless of what technique you use to lift something off the floor. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry if that's a, a lot to no, take that's... in on on radio. <laughs> so, Ralph, when you're talking about compressive force um, versus shear force, can you just tease that out a little bit? Like what those two different things mean? Uh, so a compressive force wants to squash you, whereas a right. shear force wants to slide you forwards or backwards or sideways. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. awesome. Yeah, because when I I'm I'm trying I'm thinking about this study um, that showed that where the different part like where the force is taken where the load's taken from by the body, uh, depending on where you lift in regards to – so, like, when you're flexing, if you're more flex and you're lifting, well, there's it, it kind of pushes the – I'm not saying this very scientifically, which is why I'm going to hope you're going to jump in soon, but it pushes it more out into the, the lumbar dorsal fascia. Yes. Which takes a lot of that. And, I like, I, I never knew – there was I like lump, when I first learned about this lumbar dorsal fascia, I was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" And I can't believe it. It actually, it actually takes that that force. Yes. I think that's really cool. Can you explain that a little more accurately yeah, to me? Well, I hope so. Um, I'll try. <laughs> I bet he can. <laughs> um, so, so essentially, um, you know, like like we said a minute ago, like regardless of how you lift, so whether you lift, you know, with a flexed spine, with a neutral spine. Um, the total force on your low back is pretty much the same regardless. Um, And so, however, within your low back, where that force kind of lands, which parts of your low back are subject to that force changes as you flex Mm. or, or straighten, right? So just like if you stand on one foot, right, 
your you've got you know your whole body weight going through the foot. Now, if you if you keep standing on that foot and raise your heel off the floor, well, the total force on your foot is still the same, right? Your body weight, but where the force is in your foot is now different. Like before, it was on mm. your heel plus on your ball of your foot plus on your toes. Now it's just on the ball of the foot and the toe. So it's more mm-hmm. concentrated in one area. So even though in those two situations, you know, with your heel down and your heel up, the total force on the foot is the same, actually the total force on the toes is not the same in those two situations, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. um, so like we talked through a minute ago, you know, the total force on the low back is the same regardless of, you know, how you lift, whether you lift bent or straight. Um, but the total force on your disc is not the same when you lift bent or straight, right? So even though the mm-hmm. total force on your back is the same, the where which parts of your back, the particular structures in your back that are subject to that force, it, it, mm. the force shifts as you as you flex. And so uh, essentially, you know, as you bend, as you bend forward, the 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 axis of motion, you know, the point around which you bend, mm-hmm. um, the point that is like the center of the seesaw you know, the pivot point, Mm -hmm. um, that is basically the center of your intervertebral disc, you know, so halfway from front, halfway from front to back of your vertebral bodies, you know, Mm -hmm. roughly. Right. So in other words, the front half of your vertebra goes downwards and the back half of your vertebra goes upwards. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like a seesaw. Um, and so everything behind the the pivot point, you know, every, everything behind that midpoint of the disc is stretched. You know, the back wall of the disc, the posterior annulus, is called, is stretched, mm-hmm. and everything on the in front of that pivot point, you know, the front wall of the disc, for example, is compressed. You know, because mm-hmm. the the front parts of all the vertebrae, you know, they come closer together when you flex, and the back parts of all the vertebrae, well, they come further apart as you flex. Mm-hmm. So they they stretch, mm-hmm. right? Now. The, there are more structures than just the disc, though, behind the, that midpoint, right? So if we if we go concentrically out from that midpoint of the disc, okay, the pivot point as you bend forward, the first the first structure is the posterior wall of the disc, the back wall of the disc, the annulus, it's called. That's just the tough outer kind of um, ligamentous um, wall of the disc, right? So the back wall of the disc is stretched, and then behind that, directly behind that, is what's called the posterior longitudinal ligament. And that's a, a, ling- a ligament that runs all the full length of your spine, um, basically right at the back of your vertebral bodies, you know, inside your spinal canal, you know. Um, and so, but it's directly behind your discs, you know, your, the posterior wall of your discs. So it is also stretched. Now, uh, then you have, uh, you know, the various back parts of your vertebrae, right? And then in between, so in between, for instance, the, uh, the spinous processes that poke out on the back of your vertebrae, mm-hmm. you've got an uh, interspinous ligament, you know, that goes in between those spinous, goes, goes, so it goes from your L4 spinous process to your L5 spinous process, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is also stretched, right? And then you've got a final ligament which joins the very posterior, the very tips of all your spinous processes together, and that is called the supraspinous ligament. You know, supra just means like above or higher than, right? So it's basically, you know, it's more superficial. It's above, mm-hmm. you know, if we think of 
going down into the body. It's it's you know right at the back of the where the vertebrae are, mm-hmm. uh, and then even beyond the supraspinous ligament, which is also stretched. You know as the as the as you bend forward, right? You can picture those spinous processes coming apart. You know, like because mm. the upper spine. You know, it, it tilts so that the spinous processes lift up and the lower spinous processes kind of stay where they are. So that the spinous processes move further apart as you bend forward. So the, mm. the, sup- the interspinous ligament and the supraspinous ligament both are stretched. And then finally mm-hmm. behind, or more, more superficial is the proper term, behind the supraspinous ligament, there's a layer of fascia, a really thick uh, you know, strong connect layer of connective tissue on your lumbar spine and, and kind of uh, upper sacral area called the lumbodorsal fascia. Um, and that is, you know, like if you ever go to the massage therapist and you look at their muscle pictures on the wall, mm, um, yeah. you know, it's kind of the white. The big white one. Yeah, the yeah. big white kind of circle or square or whatever on the on your low back. And that it basically um, – a whole bunch of muscles insert into that, so that your lats insert into it, your glutes insert into it, your uh, internal obliques insert into it, your transversus abdominis inserts into it. Uh, you know, your a lot of your spinal muscles insert into. It. So that, that, like, that's a very tough, thick mm. structure, and it's it's thick connective tissue, but it's basically a ligament, right? So mm. lig- ligaments are just connective tissue. You know, fascia is just another name. So basically, it's it's a big fat ass old ligament that is mm. the, the basically the full width and height of your lumbar spine, and it's called the lumbodorsal fascia. Mm. Um, so though, and that is stretched as you bend forward. I mean, you can probably picture it in your mind's eye, right? So as you bend mm. forward, this 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 fascia at the very back of your you know spine is stretched. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so here's the thing. Um, as you move further away from the pivot point, things are stretched more, right? So if you think, think about a seesaw, right? Think mm-hmm. about a seesaw. And if you think about if you were sitting on that seesaw right next to the right next to the fulcrum, right next to the pivot point, right? So you're only like your knees are touching, you know, the fulcrum, and you're sitting like, you know, 30 centimeters or 12 inches or whatever away from the middle of the seesaw, right? So as the seesaw goes up and down, you don't go up and down very far, right? Mm -hmm. You only go up and down a little bit. Whereas as you shimmy back, right, away from that fulcrum and you're further and further out along the seesaw, you're going to travel up and down further and further until when you're sitting at the very end of the seesaw, well, when you lift up, your feet are way off the floor, and when you go down, your knees are super bent and you're kind of all squidged up, right? So you're going up and down a long way now. The further mm. away you get from that fulcrum, the further you travel through space each time the seesaw seesaws, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same in your low back. So if we think about your the midpoint of that disc being the fulcrum, you know, the pivot point, well, mm-hmm. the bits that are closest to that are going to stretch or compress just a little bit, and the bits that are further away are going to stretch or compress more, right? So mm. you think about the posterior wall of the disc, the back wall of the disc, the posterior annulus, right? Well, it's mm-hmm. the closest structure to the mm-hmm. to the pivot, right? So it's going to stretch as you bend forward, but it's going to stretch relatively little, mm. right? Compared to something like the supraspinous ligament, Right, which is at the very back end of those spinous processes, like right on the tip of the spinous mm. processes, right? So it's probably, I don't know, an inch and a half, you know, 
more posterior than the the posterior annulus, right? Than the back of the disc wall, right? So it's going to stretch significantly more, you know, probably mm. double or triple the amount that the annulus wall is going to stretch, right? And then behind that again is the lumbodorsal fascia, and that's going to stretch even more because it's even further away from the center, the axis of rotation, right? Mm-hmm. So those structures, so as you flex a little bit, everything stretches a little bit, but the more you flex, the more difference there is between how much the supraspinous ligament stretches and how much the back of the disc wall stretches, mm-hmm. right? So as you bend further and further forward, the supraspinous ligament is now is stretched, you know, more uh, as like as a multiplier or as a, you know, relative to how much the disc wall stretches, the supraspinous ligament, you know, stretches more and more the more you bend forward. So basically the more you bend forward, the more tension is on the supraspinous ligament. And tension just means a force that pulls, right? So, you know, when you stretch it apart, there's tension on it. Um, and the same applies to the lumbodorsal fascia. So basically, as you are in neutral, all of those ligaments, you know, the disc, the posterior longitudinal ligament, the interspinous ligament, the supraspinous ligament, the lumbodorsal fascia, they're all relatively soft. You know, they're all relatively lax. And as you <laughs> start to bend forwards a little bit, well, the more you bend forwards, the more the ten- the total amount of tension shifts away from the center of the disc and towards the supraspinous ligament and the lumbodorsal fascia. Until when you're at about uh, 90% of your full flexion, about 75% of the tension in the whole system is on the supraspinous ligament and the lumbodorsal fascia, and only about 20% is on the disc. Mm. Don't you think that's amazing? So interesting. I hope I explained that, was, that for me, in a way that, that was, made sense. Well, you, you explained it brillintly, but <laughs> a you, little bit you, more technically than me. But you already knew it. So <laughs> I hope the people, I hope the people listening, uh, can make sense of that. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was a, a fantastic um, and uh, totally very visual. I could I could picture all of that, and I guess you know for those that are listening, you know, are they now going? But or is that is that dangerous that it's being taken to? Well, no, it's it's. Do you know Do you know what I mean? I think we need to put sort of a. Um, uh, I think it's good to understand the context of that then. That, you know, that I mean, for me, when I learn about this, my biggest takeaway was the spine is strong and robust. Like, there is so much structure around it that is so intelligent how it just, you know, takes takes the force, right? Takes Takes the load. Um, you know, I think, you know, when think back to those in vitro um, pig spine uh, experiments of the, when was that, like, was that Stu McGill and that, was that, I don't know. 2001. 2000, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and the, and the, the spines were just put in, in these compressors with no ligament structure around them. Like, they had nothing. They were just the spine by themselves. It was just like pow, 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 pow. But what we see is that, well, there's all this amazing structure around the spine that actually takes takes the force. Yeah, I think um, you know there there are studies that show that if you like that 
Callahan and, and McGill 2001, and there's another one, Guyas at L2015, that if you get a couple of um, vertebral bones out of a pig's neck, and pig, they use pig's necks because pig necks, pig's necks are pretty similar anatomically, like in terms of the, mm. the biomechanics of the way the spine segments move, they're pretty similar anatomically to human lumbar spines. Mm. Um, and so then they, they basically stick them in a jig. So you've got like your, you know, your C3 and your C4, you know, your third and fourth cervical or neck vertebrae mm-hmm. um, in the, out of the pig. Um, which apparently are quite similar to the L3 and L4 in a, in a human. Um, right. And, uh, you know, plus the disc that goes between them. So that's all you've got. You've got two two bones and a disc, right? Uh, and then you stick them in a jig, which just basically means you bolt these two spinal segments into a machine and it compresses them, you know, puts force along their axis, you know, axially compresses them, plus then with compression, then bends them, bends them back and forwards. Mm. And they bend them back and forwards once per second or once per three seconds, depends, you know, on the experiment. Uh, and they usually do it for like multiple hours or sometimes 24 hours. And then they find that, you know, after 24 hours, a certain number of them have, you know, broken or herniated or collapsed or whatever. Um, and, you know, but the thing is that, uh, well, number one, in those experiments, the whether the spines that are bent – do not get more injuries than the spines that are not bent. What happens is that the spines that are bent just have injuries in different places than the ones that are not Mm -hmm. bent. So the ones that are not bent, you know, if you just imagine these vertebrae stacked on one on top of the other, you know, vertically, and you just compress them, you know, apply a force vertically down from the top and and squish them, right? Well, the bits that get injured are called the vertebral end plates. So basically the, the... you know, the top and bottom of the vertebral bodies, you know, where it joins onto the disc, it basically collapse, right? In other words, they just get crushed, right? Whereas the ones that get bent back and forth, you know, 86,400 times, because it's once per second for 24 hours is 86,400 times, um, Mm -hmm. they tend to tear the discs, right? Or they fracture the back of the vertebral bones. They get a pars interarticularis fracture, you know, they fracture basically where the facet joints are. So, mm. but the, the, the total number of injuries that occur is the same in the group that gets bent and the group that doesn't get bent. It's just where the injury is that's different. Uh, and so mm. what those experiments actually show us is that uh, actually the, 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 the spines in the higher compressive loading groups are the ones that unfailingly get injured and the ones in the lower compressive loading groups are, the, are very rarely injured regardless of whether they bend or not, right? So the, what those what mm. those experiments actually suggest is that high levels of compressive loading are not great for the spine. <laughs> um, at least the spine pulled out of a body with no ligaments or muscles or fascia, right? Um, and, you know, who does 86,400 deadlifts in, in a row without a break, <laughs> right? So, you know, I mean, if-, if I want to meet that person. <laughs> If you did 86,400 deadlifts, you know, in one set, you'd pro- I wouldn't be surprised if you'd hurt something in your body, right? But if yeah, you did yeah, like yeah. three sets of 10, you know, twice a week for the next 20 years, well, you'd probably get mm. a lot stronger, right? And it's the same number of total reps. Mm. So I think that, that that loops us back in too, which I don't know if we've really kind of mentioned this yet in, in this conversation, like in today's conversation, is that really then what we're sort of looking – back to if we're talking about well injury or potential for injury that it really comes down to to low tolerance as opposed to any sort of alignment protocol right 
Uh, well, I think. No? I mean, yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think. Uh, I mean, I think that's a whole. You know, like I like I said right at the start. Like this is a really complex topic, and it's a very rich topic. There's a lot to talk about, um, and I'm kind of worried that you know I, I don't want to overwhelm people with too much biomechanics mm-hmm. stuff because you know what we just talked through there about the the forces shifting posteriorly within the spine as you as you flex like that's high level biomechanics stuff that's like you know fourth year university biomechanics it's not you know <laughs> it's not what you learn in yeah. your cert for in personal training um and I, i'm not sure how successful i've been able to be in explaining that in uh you know verbally with because you usually it's much easier to explain if you can draw pictures and in fact i do have a video explaining it in pictures, so I'm gonna I'm gonna link to a whole series of videos I've done this done on this. And if you're truly interested, watch the videos because I actually go uh-huh. through um, these papers that we've been talking about. You mm-hmm. know the the Callahan and McGill paper, the um and the Dolan et al paper, which I didn't mention the name of, but it um is the one that found uh, that did that this ingenious modelling to figure out you know how the forces shifted posteriorly as mm-hmm. you flex. Um, and then Guyas et al they did basically replicated the the Callahan and McGill pig spine experiment. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's a Van Dien et al. or uh, or JARP, I can't remember the name. Anyway, they did the the biomechanical study that basically found actually it wasn't a study; it was a systematic review of biomechanical studies that found that um, the force, the total force on the low back, is basically the same whether you bend or keep straight. So you know, so mm. I'll, I'll link mm. to that. But um, you know, I, I'm sort of worried about going down a rabbit hole here, and uh, but I. I I I guess uh, I I would like to just say that um, you know, not, not I think nothing in 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 biology or in in pain science is truly black and white, and there's always you know shades of grey in everything, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think it it's important to try and have some nuance. Um, I think you know there are are there you know are there situations when biomechanics do have an influence on injury risk. Yeah, I reckon there are. Like we know that people whose knees go in when you land in a drop jump, you know, like you say, if you jump off a box or something and land on the floor, um, if your knees go in more, you're, you know, statistically, you're more likely to be in the p- group of people who injures their anterior cruciate ligament, right? But we know that that is, it's, a, it's only a very small, you know, increase in risk. Um, and there are other factors that are much, you know, seem to be much more important. And it seems to be a complex interplay between factors, actually, that is what, you know, what actually predicts injury risk best. And and we don't fully understand it. So, you know, so I, w- I would like to say that, you know, there, there are, you know, biomechanics is not invalid. And there are some situations where, where you know, your body position it does pre you know does predispose to injury or does when I say pre, you know does your your chance of injury in all body positions is not identical let's put it that way so so what we then do need to do here is we need to loop back to Pilates yeah. and alignment protocols yeah. and I think it's it's very important to say Pilates is really low load. Holy fuck! It's so fucking like, low load. Yay! There's a fuck. <laughs> it's like when you're talking about you know damaging a disc or a ligament, you know, like 
oh my fucking God, you need so much force to damage those things. I mean, if you ever do a cadaver lab, you know, and try and they tell you to saw through the disc, it's like 20 minutes with a fucking hacksaw to get through one of those suckers. Like, well, Nick Nick Maz did it in, in wet lab and it was her and I feel like the story is two other guys and their job was to separate the pelvis, you know, yeah, from yeah. The, the spine. And so they were cutting through um, L5 disc and she said, you know, she started soaring and <laughs> couldn't at all. And so, like, there was two other guys. So, they're all soaring. All three of them are trying to soar. They needed all three of their weight soaring yeah. to actually slice well, through just, this disc. Just go to YouTube and type it in, you know, like hacksawing through a disc. Or, you know, go to the butcher, buy a, buy a couple of, uh, you know, an oxtail or some, you know, vertebrae. Vert, you know, mm. back strap or whatever, you know, spinal bones of a cow or a sheep or something, try and mm. saw them apart, you know, see, so, <laughs> see so how the, easy So the body is. is strong and robust and we are talking about Pilates. Holy okay? shit, yeah. So I feel, like, I feel like what we did really well was to talk about, you know, forces on the spine, et cetera. And I mean, we could have gone into all the other things, of, you know, knees and necks and whatnot, mm. you know, there's, there's podcast episode after podcast episode in it but if we are looping back to the to the instructors that are scared that something is out of place if everything is not lined up when you're doing pilates when you're doing right, pilates you're you're driving your fucking ferrari at two miles per hour right it's like it's pilates is just about the safest bloody thing you could do in the whole world right like the the rates of injury in sport, um, you know, are pretty well documented. And uh, you know, sport basically, you know, if you don't want to get injured, don't play team grass sports. Like that's that's where people or or <laughs> team ball sports. I would say sorry, it's not just grass. Netball is just about the most Netball. dangerous sport you can play because you're constantly landing and stopping and changing direction all at the same mm. time and people just blow their knees out left right and center in netball it's mm -hmm. way more dangerous than boxing or weightlifting or something something like that mm. um and then the next you know ones will be like soccer and football and things like you know american football australian football whatever where people are doing lots of changes of direction getting tackled from the side all of that kind of stuff unexpectedly mm. um mm. and then the basically the safest sports you can do are you know non-contact sports that don't involve unexpected changes of direction like weightlifting powerlifting pilates you know like all of those things are incredibly safe and you think like powerlifting safe yeah it's really safe the number of injuries per thousand is very very low it's way lower than soccer or netball or something like that it's it's mm. right down there with ballroom dancing Right. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's powerlifting, right? Where people are literally lifting triple their freaking body weight, right? You mm -hmm. know, Pilates, you're lifting like one half of your body weight. You know, it's the load is so low in Pilates, it's ridiculous. Like your body is mm. is is like I said, it's a Ferrari driving at three miles per hour, right? Mm. And in that's not to say that you can't pull up sore or you no. can't. Like, cause, you know, it, it, like I don't want to, you know, someone's out there listening going, hey, actually, well, I, you know, I felt like I did, uh, so, you know, yeah, so get a in, sore so in, shoulder or hamstring right. or but this or Pilates, that from my Pilates. In Pilates, what you're fundamentally working on is endurance and motor control. Mm -hmm. Right, so we say strengthening, and if you're a total beginner when you start Pilates, of course you'll get stronger, right? But strong strength is defined as your the, your ability to produce 
maximum force, right? Like you can lift more weight, essentially, right? Mm. Whereas endurance is when you can do it more times. And in Pilates, we don't keep adding weight. Like you don't start out, you know, when you're a beginner doing two springs and then, you know, two years later, you're doing 18 springs, you know, like mm. that we, we reach a maximum, right? So you start mm. Pilates with your legs bent doing the hundreds and then you end up with your legs straight, but that's as far as you can go. There is no further to go. So now you just get more better endurance. So now you can do hundreds and then a series of five and then all of that stuff, mm. you know, without getting tired. And so you're working on endurance, which is, so it's a fan, fantastic thing to work on, but it's not mm. taxing your joints, your ligaments, your, you know, et cetera, at their mm. maximum, it's it's a sub-maximal work. You know, it's not going to produce that kind of catastrophic injury that you get when you're changing, you know, you're maximally sprinting down the soccer mm. field and you change direction and your spikes get caught in the grass and your knee twists and someone tackles mm. you from the side at the same time. It's just the magnitude of forces involved is just way lower. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, 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 when I am doing a side plank, do I have to worry if my client's head is drooping down or if my client's head is looking up or if my client's head is – do I have to If do I have to worry about how – do you know what I mean? These are the questions I'm getting, mm. Raf. Well, These are the questions. Like this, this, people are worried about this. Well, I mean, you can very easily get to a very nihilistic position where it's like, well, fuck, you know, it doesn't matter. Just do it any fucking way. Who cares? You know, it's like I don't even care if you do a side plank, do a back plank, do a front plank, do a handstand, do whatever. Who cares? You know? Um, <laughs> So, so I think there has to be some middle ground where we say, yeah, yeah it kind of does matter what you do because we're all kind of doing the same exercise together. So let's all do a side plank. Because we're trying to create a certain shape. <laughs> right. Like if, if a side plank is that this kind of kind of looks kind of like this, is that what we're trying to get to? Like if we're trying to, if we're, if the, is this about learning a, a choreography? And so like, you know, um, the hundred kind of sort of is this shape. The rollover kind of sort of is this shape. Right. Well, if, 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 that, if that's what we're talking about in regards to alignment, but it's not because if someone hangs their head down or if someone does this or that, they're going to predispose themselves to injury. That's just a fallacy. Yeah. So like, you know, if you're teaching a tango class and I come along to learn the tango, right. And I'm doing the tango, but I'm kind of, you know, stomping my feet and, you know, kicking my head back and throwing my arms, you know, (laughs) and it's not the tango, right. Well, Presumably, yeah. if you're a decent teacher, you'll show me, no, no, do it more like this, right? Because right. what you're doing is awesome. I love interpretive dance, but, you know, just- <laughs> You're learning the tango. <laughs> yeah, we're here to learn the tango, right? And so you show me how to do it the proper tango way, right? Right. Because uh, right. it's a tango class, not an interpretive dance class. And in right. the same way, if, if I come to your Pilates class and you're saying, okay, this is the side bend, and I'm yeah. doing like a back plank with my head all crooked and my legs, you know, you're- I'm, I hope you would come to me and say, like, hey, that's, that's awesome. Cool, I love I, what you're doing. When, you know, yeah. great work. Love interpretive dance. But, you know, the side plank goes more like this. Put your leg here. Put your yeah. arm here. To put your head like this, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That's how I'm you do the you. tango. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I agree. And that's how – yeah, totally agree. So, um, yeah, but, cool. But, but am I going to hurt myself if I throw my head back or down or up? Nah. Fine. No. Who cares? Doesn't matter. You know. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And I think that's where we've really got it. And it's like, and I'm sure we've spoken about this, I think in the, in, in the posture, yeah, in the posture. Don't know, um, C- we, don't know CBO people. Don't, don't know, know CBO them. people. Yeah. people and, and please, you know, the whole laying on your back for footwork and having, you know, palpating your ASIS and pubic symphysis, stop. 
we do not need we don't know what neutral is you can't me- i mean you can't measure neutral oh, with God, your hands no, like you that we've gone through that in a, like we've gone through that plenty of times yeah. in other podcasts so go back and listen to our other podcasts if you want want the science on that um and leave your arms by your side <laughs> all right so um, <laughs> work. i reckon so okay. you know to sum up uh when you bend or straight the force on your back is pretty much the same uh and that is because uh, the muscles produce more force as you bend, but the external load produces more force as you straighten. So they kind of cancel each other out. And that's due to the moment mm-hmm. arm changing. And I'll link to a video on that, which is relatively short. It's about eight or ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then secondly, as you bend, even though the total force is the same, actually where the force is in your back changes and it shifts mm-hmm. posteriorly, shifts away from the back wall of the disc. The more you bend, the more the force shifts to the back, back, back parts of your spine, the supraspinous ligament and the lumbodorsal fascia, but the most posterior or superficial, you know, um, sort of ligamentous structures in your mm-hmm. back. Um, and you know, at, at around 90% of flexion, your disc is only bearing something like 20% of uh, the total load. So actually, there's a pretty strong argument that if you wanted to protect your discs, you should flex when you flex more when you lift. Now, I'm not saying that's something you want to do. Why would you want to protect your discs? Well, no, just load everything. Make everything, you know, lift in neutral, yes. Lift, Gradually flex, yes, load you know, and yeah. build yourself up so your right. tissues can tolerate it. Right. So start out lifting a little bit or doing a little bit of 100, mm-hmm. you know, and then build it up over time until you can do heaps. Um, mm. And then we're not saying go out, grab the 100 kg barbell if you haven't done that before and do a Jefferson curl. It's like anything. Yeah. You build up incrementally. It's start easy, build slowly. You've got you to earn the, the, the capacity to tolerate that load. You know, Correct. Whether you do it in neutral or flexion doesn't matter. It's the same, right? Correct. If you, if you increase too quickly, that's when you open yourself up to, for, for a chance of injury, much bigger chance of injury. So, you know, that Spot is on. the thing that is much more predictive of injury than what position you're in is how much, how quickly you increase your load over time. Mm-hmm. And if you increase mm-hmm. it too quickly – you know, um, that's when you, uh, you know, significantly increase your risk of injury. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and then uh, I'll link to those studies, the various biomechanical ones, the uh, et cetera. And um, if you're really interested and you want to go down the wormhole and you want to watch like 45 minutes of videos of me <laughs> talking through like the freaking Why wouldn't they want to, Raph? If, if people are listening to us, they're into this stuff. They're into it. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, it's, you know, it's like, but how how long have you got, you know? You, do you have kids? Do they want dinner? Like, you know. <laughs> so anyway, I'll link to it. Let's, you can watch it or not as you wish. But, um, but, but don't, don't not watch it and then come back and tell us about how the spine shouldn't flex, right? If you're going to tell us yeah. that, you know. Go read the freaking science first yep. Um, yep. and then come back. And if you've got a genuine question or argument with, you know, the way that we've interpreted something, like, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. But um, mm. don't just read the headline and then write a comment, you know. Mm-hmm. There's enough of that Ow. already. There is enough of that. Mm-hmm. We want yeah. informed discussions. Mm. All right. Well, hopefully this has been one. And I hope your dorsal right. fin, you know, feels better soon. <laughs> and bear in more. mind that as you bend forward, your dorsal fin being right on your back, because dorsum means back, you know, your dorsal uh-huh. fin's going to be maximally tensioned. So you probably want to work in extension for a bit if your dorsal fin's a bit sore. <laughs> thanks for the, the tips, Yeah. Um, 
Anyway. <laughs> Love it. That was great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the chat. Super interesting. Thanks, Ralph. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.